Got a good evening, everybody. Forgotten God. Just um, picking up on Caleb's prayer as he prayed for the Christian folks in this nation who have to have more influence. Uh, I was just reminded that um, last year the most popular Google search were three words: "Who is Jesus?" The most popular Google search last year was "Who is Jesus?" So we live in an inquiring nation, don't we? And we live in a nation that has somehow lost its roots, has lost its uh, Christian roots. And uh, so we, as part of the church, of course, are here to try to help rebuild what it is that this nation was founded upon. And so uh, tonight, the story of the forgotten God is very much about us reclaiming and restating our position as God wants to do that amongst his people. Forgotten God is looking at the book of the minor prophet Micah. Okay, so we're going to be driving ourselves forward into this book. It's a great little book, and it's a great way of introducing understanding prophetic uh, language, prophetic books to us. And so we're going to be uh, learning things that we might already know, but we're going to need refreshing or reminding of. Uh, it's going to be a relatively broad brush start tonight. Uh, but now let us pray. God, we thank you that throughout the ages you have cried out through your prophet saying that I am the God you have forgotten. And through your prophets, Lord, some of them who were put to death in hideous ways because they declared your word amongst the people who didn't want to know. Lord, we just are reminded that you love us enough to remind us never to forget you. And so, God, we just want to open up our hearts tonight and begin this journey through this book written by the prophet Micah and help us, Lord, to see your heart and your mind and your love for your people through what is experienced in these weeks ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, what's really surprising, and this might surprise us, is that God can be forgotten. He can be forgotten by a nation. He can be forgotten by a people who even were founded by God. And this was the prophet's role was to remind people that they have a God who cared for them, more than cared for them, created them, more than created them, called them out of the wilderness and gave them an identity. And these people would go through religious uh, ceremonies and religious festivals, and they would forget the very reason why they did them. At some point, even in Israel's history, when King Josiah was just a young boy, they got to the point where somebody went to the temple and found an old book, and they said, have you seen this before? And they said, no, what is it? And they said, we think it's the word of God. They've forgotten it to the point where no one could identify these words that were given. So we can forget God. And the role of the prophet is to bring people back so that they can re-engage with whom God is. And so the role of the prophet is, a, is a, uh, a sacred role and a very, very difficult role because it often costs them their own lives. So the question is, if God has forgotten, who speaks and who listens? Who speaks and who listens? Um, God sends his prophet to us that we might listen to that person and then re-engage with God. But it's not as easy as it sounds because here I am essentially preaching to the converted tonight, preaching to the choir, as they say, and, uh, and we're all in a place where we lean in and we listen and we appreciate what it is that God's word says. But we live in a nation, as the prophet Isaiah said, 
of a people of unclean lips. We live in a nation today of people who are moving away from God, becoming further and further distanced from God, and proudly doing so by calling themselves now, as we do in New Zealand, a secular nation, a godless nation, a nation that is neither hot nor cold towards God. And if you want religion, well, that's your own thing. It's a private matter, not a public one. Yet the prophets amongst us would keep crying out and say, God is here, God loves you, and he calls you back into a relationship with you. So the question that I'm going to ask tonight is more of a set of generalized questions that help us understand who a prophet is. In our world of business, a prophet is the leftover after a week's trading. All right? If you buy something for $10, sell it for $20, you've got a profit of $10. It's as simple as that. And that often is the only profit that's talked about. And uh, the economists determine our value, and the economists tell us whether we're doing well or not doing well. And that seems to be the way in which we measure the success of our society. So what the question is tonight is, what does a prophet do? Well, the first thing I want to talk about is that a prophet reveals the nature and the character of God. Because if we're going to worship God, we have to know who God is. If God is the gingerbread man, if God is the gingerbread man, we would value sugar and ginger and spice. We'd value raisins and a little bit of icing because that is the nature of the gingerbread man. All right? Does that make sense? And so you would offend the gingerbread man by exposing him to too much heat because he would become a crisp. Okay? So when we look at the nature and character of God, we say, who is God? What is his nature? What does he consist of? And how do we worship him or how do we offend him? And uh, let me quote some scriptures as I'm going to so that we can actually unpack this from a scriptural perspective. But God is not the gingerbread man. In fact, uh, in Leviticus it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. So in this few passages here, we've got some things that God says not to do, but the biggest pronouncement that he makes is says, you as a people need to be holy because why? Because I am holy. And if you're going to worship me, you're going to become more like me. Okay, so that's just a natural byproduct of whatever we worship, we become like. Okay, if you look at uh, some um, sort of street fashion, uh, you see where we head. You know, the young, young folks these days are sort of doing gangster styles, you know, and got their pants way down bigger than mine, and uh, got the hoodies and got the walk. Because why? Because we want to be gangster styles, okay? Because because we, we worship and we adore that culture. Okay, I'm coming up doing this very well, I know. I'm not even <laughs> pretending to do it well. I got swag. Yeah, I'm not going to push my luck. But um, what I'm saying here is that we become like what we appreciate. We become like what we worship. Okay? In many senses, we do this. And uh, what we value is what we put our money in and the way we look, all these things. So God says, be holy because I am holy. Okay? Who he is, we are called to become. And one of the reasons why we 
become holy, why we change the habits in our life and our lifestyle is because we are looking at our God who is holy and we say, I want to do things that please him. It's called repentance. We turn away from the things that upset God and we turn towards the things that please his heart. And we find that our life becomes so much more rich as a result of doing that. You know, the, one of the funny things about life is that as a Christian, you can easily give the impression that your life is all about rules and regulations. And people get this idea that that can't be any fun at all. But let me just give you an example. If I had 10 young men and I gave them a soccer ball and I said, go out there and kick it around, I bet you they'd get bored in about 10 minutes. But if I went out there and I marked out some lines, put some goals at each end, put them into two teams of five and said, winner takes all, you've got, got fun going on, you've got competition, you've got some rules and some boundaries, and all of a sudden, this kicking the ball around takes a whole new sense of purpose and meaning. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So living within boundaries that are designed to keep us safe, and in doing so, we actually reflect the goodness and the holiness of God. That's what these things are about. Okay, the other thing about a prophet is that, of course, he reveals the nature and character of God, and he makes known the laws of God. Okay, so for example, we've got the Ten Commandments and over 600 separate laws that are found in the Old Testament, okay? And uh, we won't go into all of those tonight for obvious reasons, but the Ten Commandments give us a, a backbone of, of stability as to whom it is God is. God is found in his law. So it is within New Zealand. You can read the law books of New Zealand and you can define what our country is all about. If you went to a communist country and the communist country said that you're not allowed to own uh, a business, you're not allowed to have personal property over X amount of value, if you weren't allowed certain things with your education, you would read those in the law books and that would define the personality and the identity of that country, wouldn't it? Same as in New Zealand. Okay? Um, so it is with the, the commandments. They give away the personality of God, not just rules and regulations. The other thing that a prophet does is he calls people back to obedience. Once God's established the law, he says, whoa, ho, ho, come on. You can't break this law. Now that you know what it is, this is what I want you to live within. This is whom I call you to be. You're a people, for example, to the, to the Jews of the day before Christ. They were told that they weren't allowed to work on the Saturday. That was the Sabbath. Okay, so God said that you don't work on the Sabbath on the seventh day because God, when he created the world, he rested on the seventh day. So we get this thing about who God is being projected onto who his people are. Okay, so all of these things that we're called to do aren't just there because God says, I want you to do this because I'm trying to make you weird, or I'm trying to make you different, or I'm trying to bore you or take away your fun. They all reflect whom God is. Okay, so Second um, Chronicles 24 says, although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. Okay, so this is one of the problems that a prophet has, is that he's sent to a people who are deaf and blind to the things of God because they're enjoying the life they've got and they don't want anybody to come along and interrupt that. We'll have a look bit more of that in a moment. But another thing that a prophet does is he encourages people to sincere worship. Let's read this. It says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. 
stand at the gate of the Lord's house, like church, and there proclaim this message. So you can imagine that somebody outside in the car park on a Sunday going, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord and the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, okay, so he's got a big list of all these things that they're doing, and then coming into the house of God to worship him. So the prophet is talking about the other six days of the week, and it goes on to say, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So God's saying, quite simply through his prophet, you can't have this life that is duplicitous. That means two lives. You can't have the life on a Sunday where you turn up to church and be Peter perfect. Okay, you can't be Peter perfect and try to fool everybody on a Sunday about how good you are. And yet on a Monday through to the rest of the week, you're ripping people off and you're causing all sorts of mayhem and problems. And even in this case, um, murder and lying and all those sorts of things. So it doesn't really matter how cool your worship services are in church. God's looking at the other six days of the week. And he's saying, that's where I find true worship. How you treat the foreigner, how you look after the poor, how you look after the widows. That's where your real worship actually begins and ends. You can have all these great experiences in church and say fantastic things about Darren, what a great worship leader he is. And God's saying, yeah, but did you know that the neighbor you've never spoken to hasn't got any food in his cupboard? Oh, well, that's a whole different story. You see, we're called to be more than just a, a weekend or one hour and one hour and a half Christians during the week. And so the prophet is there to call people back to a whole life of discipleship, a whole life of being a Christian, not just trying to fool a few people few, um, some of the time, okay? The other thing that a prophet does, and this starts to sort of ramp up now, we're starting to hit the, uh, hit the hard stuff, is a prophet warns of divine judgment. This is again Jeremiah the prophet saying, how can you say we are wise for we have the law of the Lord? When... Actually, the lying pen of the scribes have handled it falsely. The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give them wives, sorry, give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. 
They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. Notice those words right in the middle there. It says, uh, in verse 11, it says, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. The wound here is referencing the sin of his people. And it's not a laughing matter. Okay? The... <laughs> All right. The prophets have spoken. Sounded more like the demons are crying, but um, we won't go there. Okay. They dress the wounds of my people as though they were not serious. Uh, the prophets are saying that the priests, the people who were the religious leaders of the day, were looking at sin amongst their people and even amongst their own people as other priests, and they weren't taking it seriously. They were just scoffing, mocking, saying it doesn't really matter. Who is God? Where is God? What's he going to do anyway? And another thing that the prophets do is they foretell future events. Okay, this is often what we think prophets do and do only, but it's not the only thing they do. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I've spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. Okay, so here's a, a prophecy, a picture of what the future will bring. Okay, so sometimes uh, when prophets bring that, it can be, a, be something uh, disastrous, which says, if you people don't repent, if you don't change, God's going to lift his hand of blessing upon you and the Philistines are going to come in and take over your land and uh, it's going to be a really, really tough time, tough season for you folks, but just be warned, you've been told, okay? And of course, the prophets who bring these warnings usually get run out of town because no one wants to hear bad news. Prophets also speak about Christ appearing and this is the... Uh, the Isaiah prophecy, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So there are prophecies there that pull out this expectation that somebody is about to arrive, somebody is coming, who's a prophet of all prophets, in this case, Jesus Christ. So I don't know if any of you have thought about becoming a prophet right now after hearing a few of these ideas of what it means to be a prophet. But one of the big things that I think puts me off being a prophet is this one. And I'll explain why a bit more. A prophet must be accurate. If you're going to stand up and you're going to declare the word of the Lord, you better be right. Okay? Because even, even the New Testament scriptures tell us that a teacher will be judged more harshly than anybody else. Why? Because they have responsibility. They've been given responsibility with the gift that they have of teaching, but they are responsible to be able to do that well and with accuracy. And here's Isaiah again saying, Go now, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, See no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Okay, so here we've been told that a prophet must speak only what God is saying he should speak. 
And it must be tempting in some cases to be more fearful of men and women than it is to be fearful of God and tell a people what it is that they want to hear. But this comes with a warning. A prophet must be accurate or die. Quite simple. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. Pretty simple stuff really, isn't it? Okay, so if a prophet comes into town and says, this is the word of the Lord for us, and someone says, okay, we're going to test this, and if it doesn't come true, that person was um, stoned to death with rocks, not marijuana, okay? And so this was a pretty tough way to die, but it, it certainly sobered up people, okay? You wouldn't say, oh, I'm a prophet, aren't I clever? I'm a prophet, you should honour me. It's like, well, if you're going to stick your neck out and you're going to speak on behalf of God, you better be right. Otherwise, you're going to die. Quite simple, isn't it? Be right or die. Hmm, yeah. And so when we look at uh, the roles of a prophet in the Old Testament, we find that um, a majority of the Old Testament writings, so here's the New Testament there, you can see it there, majority of the writings in the Old Testament are prophetic literature. There's quite a bit of historical literature in there, but a majority of it is prophetic literature. It's where God has taken somebody from anywhere, it could be somebody who's well-known or somebody who's obscure, and he gives them the word of the Lord. And he then says, now I'm asking you to go to this hard-hearted people and to tell them what it is that I'm saying. The majority of prophetic writings are actually gathered up after the prophet has died. More often than not, the prophet was put to death because the prophet was in the name of, Je in the name of God um, telling people what they didn't want to hear. And Jesus himself accused them and said, your ancestors stoned and killed the prophets that you now revere. So what would happen is the prophet would come into town again and again and the people would be worn thin over what it is that these guys were saying to them. Repent or perish, repent or perish. You know, God despises your worship. God says that you should be looking after the widows. He hates the way that you murder innocent amongst, the innocents amongst you. Uh, you don't treat the foreigners well, etc., etc. And these people would just grind away in the ears of the leaders, and the ears of the priests. And finally, they get so sick of hearing them, they would find an excuse to get rid of them and they'd kill them. And then, whoa, what would happen? Five, 10, 20 years later, the words that these prophets had said started to come true. And so they would go, uh-oh, we think the ancestors have blown it. They've killed that guy and all the words that he said have come true. And they would literally go around and collect these old scrolls that had been written by the prophets and they would then become sacred documents which are passed on as part of Israel's prophetic history and they're recorded for us here. So Micah, the prophet we're looking at over the next few weeks, um, was a very down-to-earth guy. He was from a place called Moresheth, and uh, he lived to be 58 years old, they reckon. And he was a prophet that prophesied around the same time as Isaiah and Amos and Hosea. So sometimes these prophets came in groups. 
essentially times when the people of God were extremely out of control. God would send one, two, or three prophets, and they'd all be prophesying towards the king or series of kings. And so there's this consistency coming at the people all the time that God is not pleased, God is not happy, and if we don't do something, it's going to, um, it's going to be doom and gloom for Israel. And in this time when uh, um, Micah was a prophet, he came from a little town, as we say here, from Moresheth, and he was known as the country prophet. Okay, so he was a bit, little bit of a, a you know, um, country boy. His, his, his prophecies are deemed to be very straight, very accurate, but not sophisticated. Okay, it was sort of, here we go. I've just come from the country. You guys are naughty. God is good. You're in trouble. Repent or perish. That's all I have to say. Okay, whereas in the temple at the same time, living amongst the people was the prophet Isaiah. And that's where we read Isaiah. His is the, the longest book of prophecy that we've got in the scriptures. He's far more sophisticated. He's got far more understanding of the personalities and the people involved in the temple and who's running it. And so therefore, he seems to have this level of accuracy, which is far more defined and refined than our country prophet Micah. Okay, so that's why we find the prophets all have different things to say in different ways, even though they seem to be talking about similar things. They're using their own language. Sometimes they're using songs. Sometimes they're using poetry. Often they walk around themselves as a walking example of what God wanted to say. And it wasn't uncommon for a prophet to be wandering around the wilderness butt naked because he would be trying to say to the people, you are naked before God. All the good things that you think you have, God sees right through it. You're just like a naked child. You see? So they carry, they embody the, uh, the very picture of what a prophet is saying to the people. It's not just their words, their whole lifestyle embodied what the message was. So that's an exciting thing to see, isn't it? A butt-naked prophet walking around the car park before you go into church. So uh, anybody sees one, just let me know. And I don't know what I'll do, to be quite honest. Okay, so we start off with um, Micah chapter 1, verse 1. And we hear this country prophet getting straight into it. He goes, The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The, mount, the mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. Okay, now everybody could relate to that imagery. Again, it's nearly 3,000 years ago, 2,800 to be exact. And these are simple illustrations being used that describe everyday life, like wax melting, like something splitting, like water rushing down a slope. These are symbols and pictures that everybody could relate to. This wasn't meant to be complicated wasn't meant to be fanciful. It was meant to be understood, and it was meant to be heard. 
So he wasn't trying to impress anybody. He was trying to speak directly into the heart of the people using imagery that God knew the people could understand. You see, God wants his people to respond to this prophet. They don't want him to be confused. He doesn't want them to be confused. He doesn't want them to be um, dismissive of what's being said. So all of this imagery is simple and clear to understand. And to help us understand it a little bit more, you'll see here that uh, on the second line, it says, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. I need to explain that. Here we have these two parts of uh, this nation of Israel here. Uh, you've got the yellow piece and this blue piece. Now, all of this represented the people of God, okay? But what had happened uh, some centuries before is that this bottom part here had separated itself from this part up the top. Now, there were two tribes down here, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, okay? And for them, King David had been a hero. For this group up here, they didn't value King David, okay? And so you've got this split. But what the prophet Micah is talking to is he's talking to the capital cities of both of these kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Judah had its capital here in Jerusalem, and the capital of Israel had its capital here in Samaria. So he's talking to the nation as a whole, but he's addressing them as one, but he's talking to them both simultaneously. Let's go back. You see there in the second line, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. He's talking about the capitals of both these parts of what we know as the whole nation of the Hebrew people. And so um, he's talking to them simultaneously. He doesn't see them. God doesn't see them as two separate people groups. So Israel and Judah were thriving economically, but suffering spiritually. This is not unusual. This seems to be almost the, the warning that goes out to God's people at a time when they're doing well economically. I can remember many years ago now, probably about 15 years ago, I was over in Papua New Guinea and I was speaking at a, a number of churches and I was staying with the pastor way out in the, in the sticks, way out in the bush. The people had nothing. They had one, one vehicle between them uh, for the whole village and they owned a lawnmower. Okay, so that was it. And uh, for entertainment on the Saturday afternoon, they mowed the lawns and everybody watched. All right, so that's as exciting as it got. Um, and we had church starting around about 6 p.m. It got dark about 5. And at 5 o'clock, I was in a house about 100 meters away from the church. And I started hearing the singing. I said, oh, this church started. We should go over. And the pastor goes, no, 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 just wait, just wait. And uh, 20 minutes later, the singing gets louder and louder. I said, should we go over? No, 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 just wait. And I said, what are the people doing? Oh, those, that's the congregation singing worship songs before we turn up to sing worship. Well, how does that work? They said, well, you know, we just love God around here and people just love to turn up before church starts and the worship team's always there practicing. So the people just come along and join in and worship before the worship starts. I was like, wow. I wonder if we would do that in New Zealand if we collectively only owned one lawnmower. You see, because... We have so many busy things going on, don't we? Hey? Just, think of, just think of even what you've done today. 
And how many of you got to the point where you went, oh, better go, I'm going to be late. Oh, doesn't matter if I'm late. They usually do three or four songs, so as long as I'm in there before the last song. None of you did that. Of course you do that. You see, one of the problems we have is that when we're economically prosperous, we say, thank you, God, I can depend on me. I can remember watching The Simpsons once on television. You all know who The Simpsons are, of course. And uh, Bart, that's right, Bart got asked to say grace around the table by Homer. And so Bart goes, God, thank you for all this food that we worked hard to buy and we provided. Amen. It was a cheeky, cynical little prayer that said, basically, we have worked, we've bought the, got the money, we've bought the food. And this is the attitude that can, that can occur when we are increasingly removed from the sense of dependence upon God. And so when we're economically prosperous, we get absorbed with our, our fine living, our fine dining, our fun, our toys, and uh, we start to remove ourselves from God. This is why the disciplines like prayer and fasting are so vital because when you, when you fast, you actually remind yourself that food is a gift, okay? And when you're hungry, that reminds you of your spiritual need for God. And so these things aren't done to punish us. We're not being told to pray and fast because God doesn't like us. We've been told to pray and fast to remind us that everything we have ultimately comes from the hand of God, everything we have. And so here are Israel and Judah thriving economically, but suffering spiritually. And Micah wants to remind them of this. And so we look on in, the, in these early verses from Micah, and, uh, and he, he really starts to lay into these two countries, okay, these two major cities, uh, two provinces, I should say. All this, he says, is because of Jacob's transgressions, transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Okay, so he's addressing both parts of this nation. And then he goes on to say in capitals, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. Okay? Not complicated, is it? This is serious stuff. And he goes on to say again, again in capitals, all her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. And so here is a picture of what they are doing. They are worshipping the foreign gods who are promising prosperity. The thing about these foreign gods, the Philistine gods and the Amalekite gods, etc., etc., they always promised uh, fertility. Okay, so if you if you lacked having a child, you're having trouble conceiving, uh, you would go and bow down to a, 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 a sort of god like Ashtoreth. Okay, it was a fertility god. Um, and if you were looking for economic prosperity, you would bow down to Baal. Okay, it was a god of economic prosperity. And so you had this fertility and economic prosperity uh, going on. And whenever people struggled with their crops, their crops weren't doing too well, they would go and find a high place because they'd run out of faith that the God of Israel would provide because they had a bad crop. 
and immediately they would default to worshipping foreign gods. And so they'd go and arrange an altar in a high place, and they would start to make sacrifices. And this is what the prophet Micah was saying, and then you run back into the temple and you worship me on a Saturday. So you've got this mixed mindset going on of whom you worship. And the prophet Micah is saying, listen, there's going to come a day, Samaria, where your whole town is just going to be rubble, and it'll only be useful for planting vineyards. And the reason why you've done this, why I've done this, is because you're worshipping foreign gods. And you will find that they will be broken into pieces and all those high places will be brought down. Okay, so it's a very, very direct and sometimes cynical and sometimes even mocking the prophets speak in such terms. I'll show you this in chapter 2. He said, Micah, the prophet says, If a liar and deceiver comes and says... I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. That would be just the prophet for this people. So you can see how even in this mockery, in this cynicism, there's almost a sort of a a humorous side to the way that the prophet looks at these people and says, you guys are just in it for yourselves. You're just in it for your own pleasure. If a prophet come along and said, more beer and more wine for you, you'd say, yeah, he's our man. So he hasn't got a very high opinion of these people, has he? He hasn't got a very high opinion at all. And Micah's own personal response to how he's feeling about this, Micah's personal response, Micah 1.8, because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. So you can see how it is that the prophet starts to embody the message of God. He needs to, and he does, feels the heartbreak that God feels for his children who have departed the way. And this is why a prophet is so much like a parent, speaks a little bit like a parent does, or a lot like a parent. When a child is badly behaved, And the parent is saying, hey, look, this really, really hurts me, but I've got to put some boundaries in here, and I'm afraid to say you've violated the rules and you need to be punished so that you will learn what it is that these rules are. And so the prophet, when he comes to the people, he's not going, ha, ha, you got something wrong, and I'm now going to punish you. Here is Micah, right at the beginning of his prophecy, saying, I'm going to go around barefoot and naked, okay? He'll be in pain because he's barefoot. He'll be cold because he's, he's, he's naked. He'll be exposed. He'll be embarrassed in, his, in, in being naked. And then he says, I will howl like a jackal. You've heard, a, you've heard you probably haven't heard it in New Zealand, have you? But, you know, that, oh, 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 you know, that distant wail of howling. You just imagine a prophet out in the desert at night crying like a baby, howling like a jackal because he's got God's heart and God's heart is broken because of what the people of God have done in rejecting him and are worshipping foreign gods. He'll howl like a jackal. And these are the people that God sends to us to remind us 
that he loves us. That there's nothing we can do to escape his love. And even when we're badly behaved and far from him, he is so gracious and so merciful and so patient that he sends people to us to remind us that we're far from him. And we've made changes in our lives that have separated us from him. That we're facing and chasing foreign gods. And that we're enjoying our economic prosperity. And we all think it's about us. And we deserve what it is that we have. And God says, yes, but you've forgotten me. I'm meant to be your first love. And so he sends the men, and in some cases the women, who howl like jackals in the desert. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you love us enough to rebuke us, to challenge us to change. That you love us enough to send people who have your heart and their hearts break for us as they broke for the people of Israel. God, for us here today, it seems so crazy that a people called Israel could actually walk away from you to the point where they don't even know that your word the Bible even exists, and yet we all have this capacity to walk away from you, to separate ourselves one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time, and next thing you're gone. God, we thank you for our friends who speak prophetically into our lives. We thank you for those who call us to account for our behaviors and remind us of who we are as children of God, not what we're calling ourselves away from. Lord, we pray and we trust that we don't bow down to the foreign gods of economics. We pray we don't bow down to the gods of entertainment, to the gods of my personal happiness comes first. All these things, Lord, are illusions. All these things are there to distract us from the one true God. And I just pray, Lord, as we open up Scripture in the weeks ahead, that we get to see your heart. We get to feel what it's like to howl like a jackal because your heart is broken over the things that break your heart. So, Father, we commit our time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.